everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where one of your hosts is a marshal and the other's a spy. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Mr. Sobi Youssef. Sobi, are you the spy or the marshal tonight? <laughs> I don't even know what that reference is, Mark, but I, I love your intros. Oh, man. <laughs> dude, I, have, I completely catered that one up for you and your tastes. Stratego, oh, that's, uh, that's Stratego, yeah. <laughs> spy and marshal, that's awesome. <laughs> Um, I I think uh, I think I'm I'm gonna have to go uh, with with spy here. A good a good spy is gonna is gonna win you the game. Yep, yep, yep. You just gotta make sure and guard your marshal and not expend him needlessly and go take over everybody else before he gets killed by that. And hopefully you don't run into a bomb. I'll have to play a uh, uh, a block war game with you someday, Mark. That's you know they they pull from Stratego, um, but uh, put it into like a, a different direction, right? So you definitely need to play a block war game one of these days. Having said that, of all those kind of old, dumb Milton Bradley games, you know, that most of them are just stupid, random roll and roll and move games. Stratego's legit. That's a yes. real game. Yep. Stratego is good. I actually run a, as a volunteer, uh, Minneapolis Public Schools uh, board game club for uh, middle schoolers. And uh, of all the games that they can get, I've, I have tons of donations that I wrangled, of course, right? Mm -hmm. These kids love Catan and uh, Stratego. And yep. <laughs> unstable unicorns and you know that's pretty much it although i did get some to play pax Pamir, um nope. like a simplified <laughs> simplified version <laughs> wow that escalated quickly <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah anyway we, we got to get you playing a, a block uh modern block war game <laughs> long as it's world war ii themed i'm in oh there are plenty we can find one i'm sure there are maybe a uh, you know operation overlord themed one or something like that that'd be delightful yeah Awesome. Well, speaking of block war games, Sobi, I know last in our last episode, we talked a lot about how we had a big upcoming war gaming weekend or just big gaming weekend coming up out of town. And uh, that has since come and gone. And boy, I'm sure we're going to refer to it eight and a half hundred times tonight. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the weekend we spent together? Sure. So this is what we're going to dub throughout this episode as the muster. What we call a muster is, you know, basically a military gathering point, right? A muster location. Uh, kind of silly, but uh, that's what we've been calling it for years. And, uh, you know, we're a wargaming club that basically has sponsored this for the past several years. So that's what we call it. Um, so the First Minnesota Historical Wargaming Society is our local wargaming club. It's not just a wargaming club, but, uh, you know, just a, a gathering of folks that play heavy games, light games, war games, Euros, uh, whatever kind of game you want to play. And uh, at least once a year, the past few years, we've been getting together and going to a uh, Verbo location or I guess, uh, you know, Airbnb, what have you outside the city. And basically we have room for about 20 people, a couple nights, and uh, we just game the whole time. It is a glorious weekend and I definitely look forward to it every year. I was absolutely gobsmacked at the location, right? It was a converted church that was converted into two different locations and it was just you know, it was just kooky, but there was a lot of space. There was huge windows, so good light, plenty of sleeping space. It had been remodeled nicely. Given that it was kind of in a, this little tiny town about an hour and a half out of Minneapolis, boy, the place was dirt cheap, too. Oh, yeah. I uh, I actually took over the organizing effort this year from Rich, the uh I think you met Rich over at the at mm -hmm. the muster. You know, Rich has done an awesome job getting everyone together, but uh, you know, what wanted to pass pass on the torch per se. And I was always just wondering, like, why, Rich, why are we going to this place out in the middle of nowhere 
uh, you know, it's so far, it's far away from the city. You know, it'd be nice if people could just drive up and go after looking into various VRBOs and uh, Airbnbs, this is the absolute best deal. <laughs> like, oh, by, by like half. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, so, it was crazy. It was like a pretty know. nice place and lots of space. I mean, the owner, the, the owner of the place stopped by and go, oh, you guys need more tables? Okay. Yeah, and, totally. And dropped awesome. like half a dozen more tables by. Yeah, it was, it was great. And it's, it's just always a good experience. How did you like your first uh, muster experience, Mark? I have to admit, I was a little nervous coming into it, right? I mean, I'm not the world's biggest fan of war games, not the world's biggest fan of dudes on a map, not the world's biggest fan of territory control. Who likes me some history? But anyway, I was a little nervous coming into it. And I think the first thing when you invited me, I was like, dude, I don't play war games. <laughs> you're like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And, I, and I'm an extrovert, right? So I'm generally pretty okay with jumping into a bunch of people that I don't know. But um, I did get... Get our boy Nick to join us. So at least I had more than one other person that I knew. That was awesome. Nick was brave. Nick was very brave. Good job, Nick. Nick was half the age of literally everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think I'm on the young end of the people that are here. But no, everybody, you know, everybody could not have been nicer, more accommodating, more understanding and kind of more willing. Right. Because I really had no intention of playing any war games the entire weekend. And um, I never had any problem finding playmates for whatever crazy thing <laughs> I was willing to drum up and and or somebody else was running something I was interested in playing. This is the first time I've gone to a weekend of gaming where I hadn't heard of the majority of the games. that were there. <laughs> yeah. Nick said the same thing. Nick is like, I've never heard of any of these games. Where did these come from? <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely uh, more historical games uh, scattered about the, you know, both both uh, major room play areas or caverns, I guess, <laughs> that, that yep. you can shake a stick at. Just so many games, you know, from GMT, Compass, uh, Worthington, like all of those war game publishers, a bunch of Avalon Hill stuff. I mean, tons and tons of uh, very, very specific historical games. It's it's hard for you, for anyone to know all of those <laughs> and also high quality tchotchkes to go with it right i mean the number of like bespoke dice towers i saw over the course of the weekend <laughs> as well as like um i don't know whose they were but somebody had like a zero halliburton aluminum ballistic steel case full of like super detailed little biplanes yeah must have been alan i want to say that's like something alan would have dang that was cool I was yeah. like, I don't even, I want to play with these. I, I'd probably hate the game, but I would just want to play with these little things. They're so cool. Again, before we dig into the games, but just a uh, shout out to all of the the folks that uh, made, made the weekend awesome. I mean, you had uh, Todd there with his own like entire bar, basically. That was nutty. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you, Todd. I didn't know that uh, artichoke liqueur was a thing, but now I do. Yeah, I had a... Uh, Definitely some good cocktails, plenty of good whiskey all around. Everyone had good taste and wanted to uh, you know, share it with uh, with their friends. So it was a great experience. Yeah, I am absolutely a heathen when it comes to cocktails, right? I mean, I like <laughs> just the sweetest crap. And, uh, you know, he's out there whipping up all these old man drinks and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, I wish I liked that stuff because that looks so interesting. And so I complimented him. I just said, man, what you're doing is so cool. I wish literally like I liked any of this stuff. And he goes, oh, I can make you a daiquiri. And out of nowhere, a bunch of limes appear and he's crushing ice and, you know, pouring in some fancy rum that he's gotten and adding simple syrup. And it was delicious. <laughs> and that was just off the cuff. So shout out to him for sure. 
Yep, Todd gets a MVP of the the muster. I think. I think that's uh, that's what happens here. Also, on, I'm going to give Joe a little shout out too. Joe for just having a very nuanced and interesting take on games. I mean, he was kind of like out weird import small box gaming me, and I was like, oh, <laughs> his small box game is strong. <laughs> there you go, Joe. Joe, you get uh, the superlative for most eclectic weird small box yep. collection. Yep. <laughs> Chapeau on that one. That was cool. But to your point, yeah, we got to play a lot of super cool stuff this weekend. And, you know, when you're kind of the beauty of being in a small town like that is that we were locked away. There was zero distractions, right? I mean, where could you go? There was a little bar down the street and it was like 15 minutes to go into Mankato. So I don't think anybody bothered. I think that that's one of the key parts of why it's so nice to be outside the city because you know by uh, like at least an hour because then you know you don't have a lot of people coming in and out and so on and you get a good chance to play games with people hang out with people socialize right i think it's a little more of a a better bonding experience oh for sure and you know pretty much it was a it was a very serious gaming weekend i mean literally i kind of you know rolled out of bed fought my way through one of the two bathrooms split across 18 people and then kind of before we really got into it, we were playing games already. Yep. So, geez, how do we even tackle this list, Sobe? Let's start with Friday night. Let's go in a somewhat chronological order here. How about that? Sure. That sounds great. The first game we all played together, right? Um, I, you guys arrived Friday morning. Nick and I arrived Friday evening. And um, kind of our first chance to get together and play with everything was a game that maybe as a result of the phrase, just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> this is a game. I'm going to see how long it takes our listeners to guess this one, right? It's a game that's all about, it's super like negotiation plus plus. It plays four to nine players. If that's not a giveaway, I don't know what is. <laughs> it just got a reprint into a much better looking copy. It's extremely asymmetrical. and. It's a total mess. <laughs> I don't know how better to describe it. Sobe kicked off a nine-player game of Sidereal Confluence with a bunch of war gamers. What could go wrong? And, and let's get the name right here, Mark. It's Sidereal Confluence, a game of trading and negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant, a game by <laughs> Tau Seti Dykeman. Published by WizKids. By the way, I wonder what uh, Mr. or Mrs. Dykeman's actual name is. I'm guessing, like, Little 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 kid Dykeman didn't pop out, and his parents went, "Oh, let's name him Tau Seti along go, to go with his <laughs> little sister Sirius." Maybe. Anyway, for those not in the know, Sidereal Confluence, like as Sobe said, it's a trading and negotiation game where basically you have an incredibly asymmetric alien race, and some of them are really weird. You have an engine that does not have the pieces parts to make itself run, or if it does run, it runs really inefficiently. And the only way to make it run efficiently is to trade the kind of crappy stuff you have that you can't use for what somebody else has that you can use. And then by doing that, you then buy more planets and you earn victory points and you discover technologies. And by doing all those things the best, you get the most victory points at the end of the game. This was probably the fourth time I'd played this game, Sobe. I know it's at least your second. How many times have you played this before? I think this is probably my fourth as well. Um, I played on the original edition a few times yep. and then i think you and i played this new edition once prior to this this definitely was my first time playing this at nine player <laughs> and as we talked about just because you can does not mean you should let's set the stage we had one giant table with everybody gathered around it's you and me and nick and a bunch of war gamers 
one of which literally got about 31 minutes into the rules and then went nope <laughs> yeah yep no no offense no offense to alan alan uh, was a good sport but uh, he was, was not, he was, was not he, feeling it <laughs> he, he realized pretty quickly this was not his jam and he he pulled the ripcord pretty quickly that's actually a good heads up move though if you feel like you're not gonna like the game and you know it's gonna be like a good two three hours don't do it especially when there's eight yeah. other people playing right i mean the game isn't right. gonna implode because you're not there yeah exactly so we got through the rule set, distributed out all our factions. Be given that I had played before, I kind of self-purposely took one of the more difficult factions to play. And essentially, the faction that I was playing is like the currency exchange booth at the airport. I can't remember <laughs> what the name of it is, but the, the whole idea is that, yes, everybody knows you're getting a bad deal, right? You're losing money on the exchange, but you do need to change dollars into drachmas or whatever you're going to, you know, whatever currency you need to have in the new country. And that place is going to charge a premium for doing that. I think the problem with the game is if I ever play it again, I'm going to throw away that currency exchange equivalency sheet. Just throw it away. Because then, because the problem is everybody looks at that and goes, oh, three to two, that's a terrible deal. I'm like, (laughs) well, yeah, but I have what you need. I'm not doing it. This here says it's only worth two to one. But, but, okay, whatever. Like literally nobody would trade with me because they're all looking at what things are worth and they're realizing I'm offering a terrible deal. Well, that's literally the only way my faction could make money was on the exchange because my my actual engine wasn't very good. I had to make money on the trades up front and nobody would do it. But what I was offering was something that nobody else had and nobody else really valued. Yeah, I think this game kind of gets exposed as being extremely fragile the higher the player count which makes sense right i mean there aren't a lot of games you can tell me right now that are good nine player games <laughs> so yeah i mean and that and that aren't social games right that aren't right. just you know little quickie social let's draw pictures and guess what it is games let's put two cards together and see what's the funniest yeah i mean and th- this game is is a lot deeper than that it's it's really like an ultimate like engine building experience. And, you know, honestly, I've had a blast playing this every game prior to this, this experience. I'm not going to say this wasn't, this wasn't fun. Like I I did have a pretty good time and I, I know like a lot of people at the table were having fun as well, but I don't know, maybe it was a combination of just too many players, kind of bad usability with like everyone reaching all over the, the the goddamn table the whole time. (laughs) Oh, the table was such an unholy mess by the, by about (laughs) this halfway through the game, the entire table was completely full and this was two huge like convention tables pushed together. Like, yeah, that was pretty nuts. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the, the day, we, we had to cut it short because we were kind of losing interest and you know, we were all feeling it. So we, we cut it around short and counted up the, the game. And that was that. But yeah, I mean, back to my my original thread, though, regarding like fragility of the design. You know, I played as the Yangi, who are kind of like, I guess, uh, technological like savants, right? Like they, they get to kind of build technology early, get access to it early and all this stuff. And I don't know, I, I didn't kind of really feel that thematically. It kind of just felt like a, a little gimmick on my faction that uh, really just hamstrung them, to be honest. Like I kept trying to trade early access to technology and almost nobody cared, right? We had nine people that nope. were, <laughs> you yep. know, doing all this other stuff. So that was a little frustrating and challenging. Also, probably I'm just bad at using these advanced, you know, factions, right? But that was a real challenge. I guess I would not recommend Sidereal Confluence at uh, nine player. 
I probably err on the side of six player or less with this game. Probably four to six, uh, maybe five to six, honestly, is where it's it's best at. Yeah, and I'm going to go on a little side rant here about the shut up and sit downification of game selection, right? Okay. I mean, so they do a great job, right? They have historically over time, but I have come to realize that my tastes are not their tastes, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. I agree with them on some things like, you know, they put out a review of Brass Birmingham that was eight thumbs up. They put out a review of Hansa Teutonica that was just massively, overwhelmingly positive. Agreed with them wholeheartedly on both of those. But they also weirdly have a extremely strong love for social deduction and social interaction games. Okay, cool. That's the group that you play with. That is not the group I play with, right? I mean, the group I play with is not interested in playing those games. So even though... I may want to do a trading and negotiation game. Nobody else in my gaming group, generally speaking, wants to. So back to the fragility thing, who then do I play this game with, right? I'm not playing with the shut up and sit down guys. So I don't have a group of people that are going to be super into really trying to do this trading thing. And what it's digressed into on too many occasions is the, uh, you know, the Euro efficiency engine folks in my crew will look at their set of cubes and just say, no, I have everything to run my engine here. I don't want to trade anything. Right. Drop <laughs> yeah. the mic and just sit there for the next four <laughs> minutes of the live trading round. No, I have what I need. Right. And then you get you get surprised when uh, you basically uh, are, are running your own little uh, Rube Goldberg c- contraption, right? Yeah. Like you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're inputting, you know, junk A and outputting junk B, but it's just all the same. <laughs> well, and, and ultra inefficiently because your yeah. engine isn't made to run well on your own stuff. Yeah. Anyway, you like Soby said, we did end up wrapping it up a little early. Glad I got a chance to play it because it is such a wacky experience and such a wacky game. But I think both of us drew the conclusion coming out of that one that, hmm, maybe don't need to own this anymore. Yeah. The opportunities to play it are so few and far between that. I know you sold yours somewhat instantly after muster. And uh, <laughs> I did. Mine, mine left the ranch literally yesterday. So. Wow. We went from two to none. I feel bad, but, you know, I think I've played it enough and uh, I got enough out of it. So good game. I definitely recommend it if you're a fan of trading games, but I definitely caution you to never play this with over six players and make sure that people actually care about trading. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. I mean, if you're a game that loves, well, I don't know. If you're a game that loves, if you're a group that loves playing, I would think like a blood on the clock tower group or something like that, you know, something a little more than werewolf. Possibly. Yeah. What it made me actually want to play, though, is more trade on the Tigris. Yeah, you were saying that's a that's also a Jeff Engelstein design. So I really want to give that a go. It kind of packs a lot of the same punch, but just way slicker, way shorter and way more fun. Let's give it a try. That sounds good. I like that game quite a bit. There's the right amount of trading. You know, it's kind of got I would call it like a uh, eh, a Catan level of trading, right? It's not just this, you know, six minute trading round. It's just kind of this light little, uh, come on, two of these for one of these. Come on. And there's a, (laughs) there's a uh, bluffing kind of little bomb aspect of it too, where you can actually trade some crap. (laughs) You can, you can actually lie about what you're trading. Oh, nice. That sounds even better. So like, you can't lie about everything on there. You have to be truthful about the top half of the card, but you can lie about the bottom half to give somebody something they don't want. And there's actually some gotchas in there as well. So yeah, save all those for the end of the game. You get the card that you <laughs> think you're getting and you got back and it is the thing you wanted on top, but you'll see on the bottom, you're like, oh, okay, that pushes me over the limit on this other thing that I don't need. Great. Now I got to try to get rid of that. Anyway, that is Sidereal Confluence by Tau City Dykeman and Wiz Kids. <sighs> on the mogul scale, we're going to call that one a four C. 
How do you even judge this one? I mean, it, there's a there's a billion rules with all the factions, so it's got to be a four, right? The complexity of just getting it off the ground. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It has to, anything like asymmetric like this probably has to be a four minimum. Yeah. You know, just like anything, once you get to know it, it's going to be more simple on the on the rule overhead side of the spectrum. In terms of like strategic depth, C is probably adequate. I feel like there's more going on than a B, right? Because I mean, you yeah. do really have to kind of think out the how am I going to upgrade my engine and take the inputs of this out to that and score points and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, it's like a so. you know, like the the typical three C game, more complex, but then has some trading in it. I think that's reasonable four C. Cool. Um, after that, I think we all decided we needed a bit of an amuse bouche. We needed to <laughs> clear our palate with something a little, a little lighter, a little sillier, a little more fun. So, I've been hearing you for the past several weeks at our Wednesday night game group talk about your love for the man Leo Colavini. Yeah, uh, Colavini is a totally awesome designer, super underrated. Um, I definitely put him in the same realm as uh, Kinesia in terms of creativity. Uh, and simplicity of his designs. So I think uh, what we're going to talk about now is a game. I, I'm going to really butcher this, Mark. I'm going to say Huel Dotsch Mau Mau. German, not your first language, is it? <laughs> you, you think? <laughs> Gee, go figure. A guy with the name Sobi Youssef is not super good at pronouncing, <laughs> pronouncing German. <laughs> uh, that would be Huel Dotsch Mau Mau. <laughs> and that's something to do with like crying. So as it turns out, then um, you know how in how in English when somebody's crying, you go wah wah. In German, the the, the crying sound is mau mau. Ah, uh, okay. Don't know why they think crying sounds like mau mau, but I don't know. Not German. I think I heard many people at the table make that noise while we were playing, Mark. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think that's it... that's a that's a hallmark of a Colavini design. I think. Yep, a <laughs> little bit way. mean. Basically, the name <laughs> translates into uh, you know, don't cry. And um, the box even includes a little tissue in there, just in case, you know, you could beat up too bad. Silly little card game where you're trying to, are basically trying to accumulate as many points as you can by playing a card out. The catch behind the game is that the card you play out, if it has either the same color or same number as either your left or right neighbors, you have to play it on one of their piles. Alternatively, you can play a card that doesn't match one of your neighbors and just put it on your own pile or you can play a card face down and basically refuse to give them a card. Catch is at the end of the round, any cards that you have that are face down, you count the number of face down cards and any card with that number then don't count towards scoring. So if I have six face down cards in my deck at the end of the game, all sixes don't count. And I basically just add up the value of my cards. Now if I go, there are only up through sevens. And so if I have a nine, actually then all sevens and twos don't count. So I really just can't go hog wild with wild cards. Um, there's also some, I don't know, stunt cards in there, I guess. There's some that allow you to rotate the cards to the left or right. There's some that allow you to kick out the highest value cards and around the table. Uh, there's some that allow you to steal other people's cards and just some random silly crap like that. Whole thing plays out in under 30 minutes and plays a pretty quick rules teach and... Um, Lots of laughter and so forth. What did you think of Huldak Mau Mau, Sobi? I think it's a super innovative card game, actually. Like, I haven't I haven't seen any game remotely like that. I don't know. Have you? No, I cannot, I cannot say, oh, it's just like blah, 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 blah. No, it's weird. Yeah, it's definitely unique. So I'd say, you know, really, like, just, this is almost like any Colavini game. I feel like he's, he gets a ton of, ton of points for something really innovative. He gets a little negative points for 
some kind of like some of this RNG uh, mechanism we talked about with some of those take that cards, right? That, yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like I didn't get any of them. <laughs> that is actually technically an expansion. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, that is actually an expansion. You can just leave that out and play the vanilla game or reduce the numbers of them. Yeah, th- those were those are kind of fun. I feel like there would be better if there was a better implementation of them in the game. But I mean, for a light experience, it was fine. And it was really funny, right? Ah, I play this and haha, screw you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I flip my upside down card face up and you all flip yours face down. I mean, right. there is a timing aspect to maximize those things. It's not just a universal ha ha, take that. It's a, okay, I'm going to hold this card till the optimal time. And then when the time is right and everybody thinks they really are sitting in front of everybody else, then I'm going to spring the trap on them. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you get to know the game, you can time that too. If you don't, if you're not seeing things in your hand and so on. But yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of depth in that little pack of cards, and I would definitely play it again. I think it was fun. I can't say anything bad about Kuel Doch Doch Mau Mau. Yeah, if Jake listens to this, he's going to be cringing because he always says it in the just the most uh, posh Berliner accent possible. <laughs> Bulldog Mau Mau. Berlin people are just going, that's not how we talk. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. So anyway, that was uh, Huldok Mau Mau by Leo Colavini, uh, published by Ravensburger Games. You know, it's a, uh, it's probably a 1B <laughs> at most. Could even be a 1B. 1B. It's pretty simple, yeah. pretty quick. Laughs to be had by all. Unfortunately, I'm not sure it's available commonly in America. I think I had to import my copy of it. Yeah, if you could find it, pick it up. So I think we all went to sleep, had a bunch of junk food. We woke up in the morning, uh, and we'll talk about some of the other games we played, but we didn't actually play them together. So that's why we're going to move along to the main event of Saturday, Mark, which you were, both of us were pretty excited for. This was the thing I was most jazzed about the entire weekend. Yeah, this is an incredibly thematic game for an 18xx. And uh, what 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 were what were we playing here? I have had on my bucket list to play a game of 1880 China in person for literally years because for so long it was out of it was out of print. If you could get a copy of it, well, it was something you had to like cut out all, cut everything out yourself. Copies went for a bunch of money. They were kind of ugly. And finally, just last year or this year, last year, Lookout Games finally. Went to a mass retail release of 1880 China by Helmut Oli and Lonnie Orgler, the the double O crew. And it's just been, it's been burning a hole in my pocket to finally play it in real life. And when you, you're, you're kind of fledgling introduction to 18xx, I know you definitely like things that are a little more thematic and have a story behind them. And um, didn't want to throw you right into the deep end on 1880 right away, but figured it was time for you to give it a whirl. Yeah, I was super excited to give it a shot. And I guess I want to comment first on the overall like production of this game. Man, that map is just beautiful. Just a wonderful looking game. I I was really impressed. I mean, and then going over the rules, uh, you know, the all the chrome, right, with the with the Chinese revolution happening, you know, in this game. It was super thematic and not what I expected at all after playing several other or a few other 18xx games at 1846, uh, 18 Chesapeake, and then 1849 most recently. This is way more thematic um, than any of those games. And and by thematic, I mean like mechanically thematic too. Yeah, I would say in the level of Chrome, 1880 is one of the chromiest 18xx's that exist out there. You know, it follows kind of the entire story of China 
<laughs> all the way from basically like industrialization of China up through even like events happen when Admiral Perry or whatever came and visited <laughs> up through the communist revolution and kind of even put dates on it all the way up through modern times, really with the, uh, the E trains or the, whatever the big long, the big trains are the sick. I forget what the biggest ones are there, but there are so many weird little, uh, sub cases and weird little rule sets that for 1880 that exists in no other game really. Like, let's just start with basically the turn order. Most 18xx games do a tick-tock between stock round, operating round, stock round, couple of operating rounds, stock round, maybe three operating rounds, right? They they have this cadence that goes through phase by phase. Oh, no, not 1880. 1880 keeps operating until you go a complete lap of the companies without anybody buying a train. And then you throw away the rest of the train rank, have a stock round, and then you go right back to the company that was operating. So now they can actually buy the, they can refuse to buy a train, do a stock round, come back with new capital, and then buy one of the new trains that come out. Really tweaky. Yeah, there's uh, definitely some interesting like levers to pull because of that system. And, and I definitely did not get it <laughs> in, our first, in my first play here. So we are playing on 18xx.games. So, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll have some, some more, uh, I'll be able to apply this experience a little better in the second go. Just a couple of the other main highlights. There's some, um, you know, some of the main gamification things. Number one, when you start a company, you don't get all the money right up. You get kind of only half the money until, uh, I think the three trains come out and then also you have half of your shares sold out or something like that. Then you get the rest of your capitalization. There's foreign investors that build routes and run trains and make money until you merge with them. And then your company takes them over and you get their funding as well. And then, you know, everybody loves the communist revolution when the stock market shuts down and Taiwan becomes worth no money. Taiwan's really valuable until the communist revolution happens and it's nothing. But since the stock market shut down, right, you can't sell anybody down. You can't sell out of your own shares. Stocks don't go down if you withhold. They also don't go up. So it's kind of this weird, super gamey twist where you can go through and withhold as much as you want and put some resources back in the company or <laughs> make some stock moves if you need to. I can't think of any other game that has a mechanism exactly like that inside of the game. Yeah, the nationaliz nationalization is the way that it's tackled in 1880 is super interesting. It actually makes me think of Trans-Siberian Railroad's nationalization a little bit, just kind of comparing those two things, which... I, you know, we'll, I could talk about this a little later, how, how uh, interesting I think cube rails are now, but that's, that's an aside. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, uh, this nationalization mechanism is super interesting and it was really hard to gauge like what I should be doing right now. <laughs> exactly. Right. But I feel like it's obvious that I needed to withhold at least uh, once or twice during that time in order to prep for the final train push. So that's a really cool, like halftime mechanism. Right. Now, the downside of the whole situation, not that there is really a downside, like I love the game and it was fun. The downside of it was, is that we, you know, first off, it's a super chromy game. Second off, we had six players playing. Uh, yep. We had six, didn't we? Yeah, or five. Two, five. Yeah. Five. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the players had never played 18xx before, much less a 1880. And that was like, hey, welcome to playing trombone. Now you get to learn the <laughs> yeah. 1812 overture. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I got to hand it to him. He, uh, he definitely, uh, went out on the limb with, uh, volunteering to do this. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as a result, right. I ended up doing a full 18 XX system teach, not just the, uh, you know, Hey, here's, you know how to play 18 XX. Here's the Chrome for this game. Let's play. Yeah. So 
I think it maybe took 90 minutes to get through the rules teach and explanation before we could even get started playing. It was quite a bit. I definitely needed to needed to take a break <laughs> midway through rules teach. So, yep. But I think honestly there there's just so much chrome in this game anyway that even if you are an experienced 18xx player, there is going to be a minimum, I don't know what, mark 30 to 45 minutes rules teach. I mean, yeah, I th- I mean, yeah, I think among experienced players you could probably knock it out in 30 minutes, but even then there's going to be some questions and you're probably going to miss some of the weird little corners. Yeah, there's just a lot. I do want to say the the rocket of China. That was a bad move <laughs> on my part. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, so I, I inadvertently torpedo Sobe's game right in the first minute of the you know, first 5 <laughs> minutes of gameplay. I was explaining the privates and there's one called the rocket of China and the rocket of China can be just traded in on a train at some point in the future. So you kind of want to save it for a point that you're in some valuable trains and a little short on money. Well, that's a really powerful, really good thing. And I rather hyperbolically commented. I'm like, oh, there's a reason this goes for like 275, not knowing that you'd take that as gospel. (laughs) Yeah, I bid uh, 225 on the Rocket of China and completely like pushed myself out of any like early game activities. Like I I couldn't buy any shares (laughs) the first like the first stock (laughs) round. Like it was it was brutal. So I uh I sat I actually sat and watched anime for the first two rounds (laughs) while I was waiting to get stuff to do. (laughs) Yeah, I felt really bad about that one. I didn't think anybody actually take me seriously on that. (laughs) It was like I should actually in hindsight I should have stopped in the auction and just gone uh, hey, uh, maybe we take this again. That <laughs> yeah. I think you just lost the game by bidding that much. Yeah, I did pretty much. I, I lost in the auction. So good experience. Never going to bid that much on the Rocket of China again. <laughs> yeah, ultimately we did. Um, I don't. We did not actually finish the game on this one either. We ran probably six or seven hours, and it was probably about six hours, right, including the teach. Yeah, I think. Uh, what did we go from like ten to like? No, it was more. It was like eight. It was probably six playtime with an hour and a half teach and a little break in there or whatever. But um, yeah, we did ultimately end up. It didn't change the uh, the trajectory of the game. Was pretty well decided by that point. Yeah, your boy pulled out a win here. Applause. I'll take applause. it. <laughs> applause, even though it was against a bunch of newbies. But hey, I got to take what I can get, right? Yeah. Obviously, I'd ask you if you'd play again, but you are playing again, so. Yeah, I definitely like having an in-person go and then being able to dink around in 18xx.games to, you know, experiment and learn and so on. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good tool for that. I I think that learning to play a brand new 18xx right now is probably going to be too challenging for me on on that platform, but uh, I'm okay to play a, a game of 1880 China over the next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I've actually done a few times with uh, newer players on 18xx.games is we'll do we'll all meet in person online and do like a Zoom meeting for just the kickoff. And we'll do like the uh we'll we'll go through the rules, discuss discuss the rules and make sure everybody understands them. And then we'll do like the uh the opening auctions live. Mm-hmm. And we'll get through, you know, we'll just run through that all quick and then kind of drop off and do the rest of it more asynchronously. And that's awesome, Mark. That's like an extreme nerd version of a fantasy football draft. <laughs> kind of, yeah, but it but it, you know, especially when somebody's new to a game, gets everybody off on an equal footing and kind of gets to the interesting part right away because really those those opening auctions a lot of times are the most intimidating parts of 18xx games. Yeah, especially when you don't understand the privates and how they interact with the game and that's really important, I think. 
So that is uh, 1880 China by Helmut Oli and Lonnie Orgler and published by Double O and Lookout Games. Earlier in this episode, we mentioned that our friend Joe brought a bunch of weird little games, right, that I'd never heard of and so forth. Again, kind of after a huge game, you kind of need to just take a little little break. And it was kind of on towards dinner time right now. Joe pulled out a little Turk Taker. And I have to admit, I did not get the name of that one, but I think you did. You know which game that was? Yeah, it's Boast or Nothing, a.k.a. Bon. Aha. It's a It was a pretty unique little trick taker. I think that I won. <laughs> I don't remember. I, I gave it over to Nick, I think, to finish out my hand because I had to go teach uh, another game. You know, you're basically trying to not win tricks. Yeah, the strength of suit changes on every trick. Yeah, that's right. There's this little stack of cylinders uh, with different colors. And then whichever suit wins the trick goes down to the bottom of the pile. And then that becomes the lowest power suit for the next trick. So basically, like, let's say you have red and blue and, uh, I don't know, yellow. Maybe I'm wrong here. And then you play, you know, someone leads with a red and red's on the bottom. And then someone doesn't have red. Well, anything else you play is going to win you that trick, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as someone else doesn't beat beat you after that. So it was a really interesting uh, method of uh, must not win the trick. So I think that I kind of got it, and there were some some good decisions involved in it. Not horribly deep, and I think uh, any everyone at the table was having a good time. So I would definitely recommend that, and I would try it again. Weirder than crap art. Oh, yeah. There's like these weird, like... Like this, cotton balls wrestling... Or... Yeah, there's this picture here of a cotton ball with like a tongue and a mustache. The art's pretty cool. It's super unique. That was a lot of fun to play. And thanks, Joe, for bringing that one. Yeah. Since we've been gaming, Sobi, one of the things that you've talked about is your love for Vita Lacerda games. And we have yet to actually play a, a Vita Lacerda game together in person until that night at Buster. Yeah. Because apparently playing a eight hour game of 18xx wasn't enough for one day. We had to get a Vita Lacerda game in. Yeah, this uh, I, this was on. Uh, you were really excited to play this for the for what the past uh, year and a half, Mark. Oh, <laughs> this one was five was years. On your shelf. Five yeah. years. Okay. Five. I think I I think I've owned this copy of Vinyos for oh my goodness years. I mean, basically when the deluxe version came out, I got a copy kind of right off the bat, and it just I've never had the chance to play it. You know, partially due to my group is somewhat soured on Lacerda games, somewhat so. Nobody's super excited to get it out, and they're heavy, and they're hard to learn, and so it's just kind of languished on my shelf. Finally, with you commenting that this group likes playing Lacerda games and heavy games and so forth, I went, great, I'm going to buck up, I'm going to learn Vinyos, and we're going to play it. By the way, the other thing that has always kept me off of learning and playing Vinyos is the fact that there are two games in one box. There's the Mm -hmm. 2010 Vintage Edition, then the 2016 Vintage Edition. Which one's the good one? Which one should I learn? I have no idea. Never could figure that one out. So I finally just rolled with the 2010. think that's the more complex version. And judging that that's the way this crowd wanted, that was the one we rolled with. So uh, Vinyos, pretty much the exact same theme as Viticulture, where you're trying to you know grow grapes and raise them. This one goes a little deeper into like the marketing and production side of things, or the marketing side of things and the production side of things. So you know, not only do you have to actually create the wine and age them, but you also have to enter them in the fair and you have to get experts to agree to like them and you get some tycoons to invest in you, which give you extra powers. 
whole game plays out over six rounds, and at the end of the six rounds, the one with the most victory points wins. Like every Vito Lacerda game, it's interlocking system versus system versus system. And like most Vito Lacerda games, super duper thematic to the point of simulation at some at some points. So, Sobi, you hadn't had a chance to play this one before, have you? No, this was my first time as well. Um, and I, yeah, I do agree that this was pretty thematic. And I also want to say that in terms of Vital Lacerda's portfolio, if you will, this is probably one of the easier games to get into of his. Yep, I want to say, and maybe, maybe Kanban is is up there too. But you can see like dashes of uh, all of his other games really in this. You know, you can see some of the mechanisms that went into Lisboa. Definitely, you know, some of the like the financial management. I I think that was really ported directly over from Vinos into Lisboa. I feel like Gallerist. Uh, you, you definitely had some some Gallerist vibes, if you will. Yeah, I mean, just like uh, a lot of the other Lacerda games, you have workers, worker placement, you have different phases th- that uh, you're trying to navigate um, in order to market your wine cr- uh, optimally, right? So mm-hmm. you, know, you want to be preparing the uh, the tastemakers for your wine in advance and, you know, to get a leg up on your your competition so you can get as you could expect in a Lacerda game, free actions, bonus actions. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yep. But then at the same time, you have to monetize all of this. And actually, I think that's probably, you know, how I ended up uh, pulling away with the victory at the end of this game is I ended up with the uh, a higher focus on my bank account. Which you were able to just, at the end of the game, turn your bank account directly into victory points. Yeah. With a special bonus perk that you purchased yeah, it's a very interesting mechanism being able to purchase perks at the end of the game, almost in a very similar way to the to the way that uh, Carnegie does it, right? Where you have to invest an extra action or bonus action to invest in an end game scoring. You pick the one that involved lots of money, and you were able to basically divest your bank account and then turn that into bonus points at the end of the game, which sent you rocketing forward. Yeah, that's a really good observation, Mark. Actually, that that. I didn't even think about that. That definitely has a Carnegie feel too, which I guess you could say Carnegie has a a Vinos feel with its contracts. (laughs) That is the correct order. Yeah. I felt that this one very much is a a spiritual partner to the Gallerist, more so than it was Lisboa, right? I mean, I I can definitely feel that if if you like Gallerist, I'm very confident saying that you're going to like Vinos and vice versa. You know, somewhere as time went on, like, you know, the the more complex that Lacerda made games, the more accolades he got to them until he kind of recently has been pushing him to ridiculous conclusions. But um, this is still back in kind of the, uh, the simpler days of Vito Lacerda, I would say. I think he's kind of stopped doing like real world thematic games as much, right? Like he, he did uh, Vinos and Kanban and Gallerist and, and uh, Lisboa. And, and then oh, he man, lost and, his freaking mind. Yeah. And then on Mars, like, what is that game even about? I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's a pretty fun game and, you know, I had a good time playing it, but like, what am I actually doing here? Like these orbits, they make no, they're all nonsense. I mean, like, you know, it's really just forcing this game into multiple phases. So just, you know, I used this term earlier today, but like Lacerda can be the king of the Rube Goldberg contraption if he wants to be. And, you know, I think one of the testimonies of how well it was done is one of the, uh, one of the gentlemen that ended up playing with us most definitely was not like a heavy Euro type of guy. I mean, you know, you listen to the games he liked playing very much. His, his favorite types of games were medium weight Euros. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he picked up the game pretty quickly and was reasonably competitive. Yeah, he had a. I think it was Bob, right? Yeah, he, he had a he had a really good time, I think, and and I think that says a lot. Even then, you know, I, I know Bob wasn't like doing the best in uh, in the the mid or two thirds through the game, but he was just having a blast. He he loved playing. Mm-hmm. Very much. That was the, that was my second play. I'd played it the weekend before with my son head to head, and came away from that just going, "Ooh, I really like this one." And yeah. it definitely stood up the second time. And this game, I'm going to push to play a lot more often. Yeah, I think this would be a fine regular game night game uh, with your normal Wednesday night crew. I think that we could get get everyone on board with this. It's it's just got like the right amounts of Euro, like old school Euro feel, but then also some of the uh, infernal machinery of uh, <laughs> of Lacerda's visions. Yep. And it, it's funny, too. It um, as, as I was going through the rule set, I'm, I'm sure part of this was due to the fact that we'd been playing a lot of rule heavy stuff all weekend long. As I was going through the rule set and the teach on this one, at the end of it, you were just like, oh, man, this is tougher than Lisboa. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> no, no. This is actually a pretty simple game. Once, As soon as you get into it and see a round played. And I do believe you finally came or you, you came around to that pretty quickly. You were like, oh, yeah, OK, I guess this isn't that tough. Yeah, yeah, it's super simple. It's just the teach is a little weird. But once you if you have any experience with with these games then you're not going to have a problem. I think this is probably tied for the best three games I played at the muster. Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely a uh, high praise right there because you played some really good ones. Yeah. So anyway, that is uh, that is Vinos. I'm happy to finally get that one dusted off my shelf of shame. I mean, there's lots of shelf of shame dust all over that one and got a chance to clear it off and play it. You know, I think like most Lacerda games, right? This is probably eh, we're probably looking at a 4D right? I mean, yeah. it's, there's more strategy to this than your normal game and there's more rules than your normal game. So it's definitely a notch up from your standard midway Euro. And like every other Vito Lacerda game, the publication is absolutely top notch by Eagle Griffin. Yeah. It's a beautiful game. Awesome. Well, you mentioned Sobi that, uh, you're saying compared to other games you played, this was the best of the weekend. What's something else you played that was up on that level? I played a bunch of stuff and I'll just go through a quick list. I'm not going to talk about each one. So the stuff that at the upper end of the the, the echelon that I played, I, I had a good game the first night of Maria. Uh, I played with uh, Classy Andrew and Troy. Good game, guys. Thanks for, uh, for, for playing this. Um, Troy had some, I think, some pretty bad card pools in Maria and uh, had a hard time as France. Just for anyone out there that doesn't know Maria, it's a three-player it's probably the quintessential three player like Eurofied war game. You're moving these little pucks across the board and then uh you have these like square grid zones of uh suits that correspond to standard card suits where you basically have to play these cards that you draw every turn based on your faction's power. So you're just trying to defend the, this territory and then, you know, sneak through to the end of the game if you're uh if you're playing as, you know, Maria, the Austrians. Um, if you're playing as the Prussians, as Frederick, well, you're trying to uh, completely crush Maria. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then if you're playing as the French, well, you're uh, you're also trying to crush Maria. So <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a unique game where there's a bit of schizophrenia because, you know, while both those factions are trying to gang up on another faction, you also have the Prussians allied with Maria on the other side of the map. So super unique. Every time I play Maria, it's a really fun experience. and. Uh, you know, winning with the Austrians is, I think, fairly challenging overall. Not like horribly so, but definitely a lower win rate, I think, in general. 
and so I felt good uh, managing to pull out the victory in Maria. So that was a blast, and we should definitely play that sometime, Mark. It's not a traditional war game. I think you will enjoy it. Besides Maria, I want to say the the other best game I played definitely has to be Age of Steam, which I am becoming a much bigger fan of since I've played, uh, I want to say, five times now. I really like Age of Steam, and I almost will not say no to a game of, of it, to be frank. And this is the first non-base like Western U.S. map, I want to say, that I've played. Mm-hmm. It was pretty unique in, compared to my experience with the game previously. So, So Age of Steam was a blast. Some of those really warp the game. I mean, they really make it a different experience depending on which map you're playing. Yeah, this one, there were like resources dotted throughout the landscape. So setting up a, a good initial uh, setup and then trying to find vectors to to pick up those cubes. That was that was pretty fun. It was pretty close, actually, at the end with Todd, the uh, the bartender we talked about earlier. So me and Todd had uh, had a good end game there. So Age of Steam was a blast. Other things I played, uh, I played Quartermaster General. World War II, very light uh, Eurofied card game, kind of like a Wargamer's uh, party game or beer and pretzels game. Pretty good if you're looking for a, you know, a lighter, fun Wargame experience. And then I think that's that's really it. That was my muster. Did you play anything else, Mark? I did. Um, when I first got there Friday night, you were in the middle of playing Maria. Everybody else was occupied. I didn't know anybody else. Nick and I got there at the same time. So Nick, also a big fan of Uwe Rosenberg and had never played Oranian Burger Canal. So I felt this was my opportunity to pull that out and teach Nick the joy that is Oranian Burger Canal. And um, still continues to delight and enjoy. You know, if there's a downside to the game, it's that there's a huge variety in the buildings. that you, They're all unique. And the iconography can be a little wonky, a little hard, to, little hard to grok on that one. But it was crazy. Every time we pulled out new buildings, Nick was just like, what? That's crazy. What? <laughs> Nick absolutely cleaned my clock on the first one because he tends to be good at games like that. But um, yeah, that's uh, that's definitely one I need to get you to play because uh, it's been a pretty surefire hit among people who like playing that kind of stuff. So we played a game of Iranian Burger Canal. And then uh, the other couple I played is um, Sunday morning while you were playing Age of Steam. Kind of had a slow start that morning, low impact morning, but we did get a chance to play a game of Cat in the Box. Um, we've talked about that before, so I don't need to go into great depth on that. And I also played a brand new trick taker I've got called Tall Tales, developed by Rand, published by New Mill Industries. It is a recursive trick taking game about telling the best stories. Interesting. I'm not sure we got the rules right. The rules were a little indistinct about exactly how things work. Or it could have been Sunday morning after playing a lot of heavy stuff. I'm not sure. I think we played it right, but basically what happens is like only there are certain rounds that are scoring rounds. And so you want to like purposely sandbag in the non-scoring rounds so that you can improve your hand by drawing, you know, of the cards that were left over. You can take some of those and make your hand better for future rounds so that you can go and kill in the um, in the scoring rounds, actually. So interesting and weird. Probably need to do more research and see if I got the game rules right or not. <laughs> So yeah, both those sound really cool. I, I really do need to play Iranian Burger Canal. Um, oh, you almost forgot. There was a little bit of crocodile action at the oh, end. Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you can't can really count. count it, but yeah, I brought my crocodile <laughs> board along thinking that, you know, if a whole weekend away, somebody's going to be just have a few down minutes waiting for their uh, frozen pizza to cook or something like that. And actually did not get played as much as I thought. And, you yeah. know, we flicked it around a little bit right before walking out the door. Yeah. Crocodile's just fun though. 
I, I wish we had uh, some time to play. So the last game I want to talk about here before we get on to uh, our new feature of the episode, we have played the same game two weeks in a row, which is actually a little weird for me, right? I almost <laughs> never do this one, but kind of by popular <laughs> request, we ended up playing the uh, Vladimir Sushi game Praga Kaput Regni two weeks in a row on my Wednesday night game night. Yet another game that's been burning a hole in my shelf of shame. I'm a huge fan of Vladimir Sushi across the board, right? I, I, Underwater Cities is a fantastic game. I really love Pulsar 2849. I'm really interested in some of his other games like Messina 1349 and what is it? Woodcrafters? Woodcraft? Woodcraft. Yeah, he, he did Woodcrafters as well. Yeah, you know, I decided that uh, I'm going to get more into Vladimir Sushi games. So I asked for this for Christmas, got a copy of it, and then it sat. So finally, last week, I just decided we're busting it out and playing it. It's not a very complex game, but it's busy looking, right? I mean, the art is busy. I knew going into it right off that I was going to have to do a little bit of a sell job on the people playing because it looks crazy. It looks like, oh man, I don't know about this. But in reality, it's a game about life in Prague somewhere around the Renaissance and the building of the Charles Bridge and building up buildings around the plaza. And I don't know, it's a Euro at the end of the game. Yeah, so there are um th there's a unique rondel mechanism and i think mark you said this correctly the last time we played is you know a little bit of vibes from craft wagon by Math matthias uh, matthias kramer mm -hmm. but basically there's a there's a rondel mechanism here you choose your actions from the rondel and the areas under the rondel can you know, show whether or not there's a cost adder for that action at the time or a victory benefit because people haven't been taking that action. And then internal to the rondelle, you also have these other uh, bonuses that you get from taking those actions. So, you know, you can set up some serious combos in this game. And, you know, we definitely use the term combolicious frequently in referring to that phenomenon repeatedly. There's a lot of different resources you're trying to convert into other resources so that you can get bonus actions, of course. That's like the key in this game. And Mark was goofing around earlier this week trying to convince me that someone said that those aren't uh, important and almost had me fooled. But <laughs> <laughs> well, so the game itself is only you only get 16 actions in the game or something like that. So yeah. anytime you see a game that that's that's that stingy with number of actual actions, if there is the opportunity to take an extra action or a free action, that is a dead giveaway that that's super powerful and something you should really angle for. now. It's fairly expensive and fairly difficult to do that. Um, it's not easy to line up. You know, if you can even stretch out that 16 actions into, you know, 18 or 19, that's going to make a huge variation in your score and your ability to do stuff because it's going to kind of magnify your engine and get you more resources and so on and so forth. So pretty simple game. The actions are, are relatively atomic. I mean, one of them is you can upgrade your actions that you can do. Another is that you can build buildings in the plaza. Another is that you can just build walls around your little action board. Another action is where you can walk down the King's Road, which gets you progressively increasing bonuses. And um, the last two is you can upgrade your economy. You can upgrade your stone economy or your gold economy or cash out and get those things because those are really the coin of the realm. Most of the buildings cost either stone or gold or some combination of both of those. So if you run out of those things, you got to take an action to get more. Now, hopefully, like we talked about, there's a combo around every corner. So a lot of times it's the case where you select an action, you get the bonus thing with that bonus thing gives you the resource you need to place down the piece that you want to place 
which then completes something which gets you extra stuff, which then completes something else which gets you extra bonus stuff. And then that can get traded in for windows, which then allow you to take an extra action, which allows you to pick a action of your choice, which then gets you four more actions, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds like it would make a turn take an awful long time. But remember, I said these actions are all pretty atomic, right? The decision isn't huge on each one of these actions. There are some really complex things you can line up as part of that chain of actions. And I think ultimately... What we decided on our last play, Sobi, is this is a feel-good game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what was the term that uh, we were using? Oh, you know, a lot of these Euros with uh, angry guys on the cover, they make you feel disgruntled, right? Or or the people on the box look disgruntled. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we decided to go the opposite direction with Praga Kaput Regni and claim that the game makes you feel gruntled. Yeah, if disgruntled (laughs) is unhappy, then, of course, gruntled means that you're satisfied. I'm so gruntled by the... Kind of everything you do feels good, right? There's very few times where you're just hosed and you can't figure out where you're going. You're doing seven things. I'm going to get this and then I'm going to feed into that. I'm going to get that. I'm going to do these three. You know, it, it's fun. There's always something to do. Our second play really managed to uh, leverage that extensively. Like our scores were way higher and we kind of got that vibe of all the things you're supposed to do. Yeah, I think there's a an exponential like action economy VP curve in this game. Like you start out pretty slow doing some stuff that is kind of dumb and then eventually you you set up your engine through taking various actions that, you know, give you bonus a- uh not necessarily bonus actions but like action uh actions that you wouldn't necessarily take as your core action right and then that keeps getting set up more and more and then ultimately like mid to late game you're just your score just explodes it's very point salad i mean if you're not yeah. a point salad fan you <laughs> there's nothing about this game that's going to change your mind on that no i made a very fatal mistake the second turnaround I ran out of gold at one point. And the problem with running out of gold is that gold is what you need to pay to get some of the more recently used actions. So like if somebody takes the get gold action, it goes into a slot where you have to pay two gold to even take that action, right? And maybe you get five gold and even though you had to pay two, you're still three up and now you can unlock and do some stuff. But when you have zero, there's no way of getting gold short of taking a gold action. And if that gold action is sitting on a spot where you have to pay to take it, you can't take it. And then as soon as it becomes free, somebody else takes it and resets that curve of doom for you as well. So I really learned that going down to zero gold was intensely a bad move. And even though I was like leading at the 50% point of the game, I literally just stopped in my tracks. It was like somebody just threw the anchor out the back window and the car just (laughs) screeched to a halt. And you guys went flying by me and I ended up finishing with half the points you did. Yeah, well, you'll just have to get revenge next time because I think we'll probably play it again. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> Phil bought it literally the next that not later that night or the next day. He was just like, I want to be gruntled more. This game is great. Right. I want to say on in terms of interactivity, if you're looking for uh interactive game, this is pretty interactive for Euro. Yeah. I would say it's not like multiplayer solitaire. It doesn't feel like that. There are some mm-hmm. there are things you're competing over, right? The rondelle has some competition to it. And then the buildings and what buildings you're taking from the offering and then where you're putting them. Timing on when you place them too is super important. Because yeah. you're trying to basically complete areas around squares and have the majority of the area around there. So you're also fighting over majority bonuses in there as well. Right. I would say it's not as interactive as um underwater cities. For example, because sure. that ha- that has direct like 
action selection in it where you're boxing people out of actions. And this one, you know, again, it makes you feel gruntled where as in a game like Underwater Cities, you're definitely not going to be happy if you your that action spot is filled up. I'd say interaction is a little lighter, but uh, definitely there as compared to Vinos, right, where that game is definitely an interactive game. You know, you have right. worker worker space competition. Um, it's a little more cutthroat. There are things you can do to directly hurt other people by taking their spaces and so on. But yeah, still an awesome game. I don't know if I absolutely like adore love Praga Kaput Regni, but it's just so easy to play. Mm-hmm. You introduced me to that little card game, uh, the, the engine builder, Res Arcana. Yes. So this kind of gives me a little bit of that vibe. Is that yeah. just an yeah. easy, yeah, easy, yeah, easy to play engine yep. game? Yeah. Yeah. Where you're constantly doing cool stuff. Yep. Yeah, it's been a joyful little bit of a surprise. I think we're going to play it quite a bit more. And, um, you know, I continue to really enjoy everything Vladimir Sushi does. And I think, um, actually, I think there's a good chance we may play Pulsar 2849 tomorrow night, which is definitely more interactive. Yeah, I'd like to give that a whirl. And then I also have uh, Messina 1347 on the shelf here. So definitely need to get more Sushi games played. Yeah, here's my uh, conspiracy theory. Those two games are in the same world. Pulsar and Messina? Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, let me hear. Let me hear this. Well, I mean, did you Pulsar 1349 and then, you know, approximately 1500 years later, Pulsar 2849. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's a stretch. I'm literally just going off names there. <laughs> oh, I suppose by that map, 18, 1849's in the same universe. Anyway. So what do you think, Mark? Should we get to talking about brass tacks here? Oh, we should, yes. <laughs> uh, not until we give a mogul scale rating to Praga Kaput Regni. Uh, and for those, just as a quick background again, uh, mogul scale, the number digit is the complexity of the rule set. The letter scale is how how big the decision tree is, how much how brain burning is it. 1A, very much a, uh, you know, we're playing tiddlywinks. 5C, we're playing the 540-hour version of uh, Campaign for North Africa. So, Sobi, why don't you do the uh, honors on this one? Thank you, Mark. We'll compare notes afterwards. I'm going to give this one a bold 3C. No way. <laughs> it's almost the dictionary definition of a 3C, Soby. <laughs> you were going to see a face over the, uh, the the monitor camera here if you didn't give it a 3C. <laughs> but I will tell you, it looks like more than a 3C. It looks way busier, way more complex. No, it's a very easy to understand game. The iconography is good. The do loop is simple. It's a pretty quick teach and um, it's joyous to play. Yeah, you might be fooled into thinking this is a four in terms of the, you know, just the sheer amount of stuff on the board. But yeah, it's it all makes sense. Sushi does a just a wonderful job taking a lot of these like me- mechanisms and components and just making them easy to put together, which I wish more war game designers would take that aesthetic and and use it. And it has crazy 3D pieces. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we can't we can't just, you know, go by and not say that there's a, you know, there's a castle and there's a cathedral, which are like these 3D step things that you have to cl- that you have to scale your little markers up. Totally don't need to be that a flat painting on the board would be just fine. But, you know, it makes it distinctive. And we've got the Charles Bridge. Yep. Anyway, that is Praga Kaput Regni by Vladimir Sushi, published locally by Rio Grande Games. All right. I'm going to introduce a new recurring segment to the Moguls episodes. They say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and I'm going to flatter the daylight out of a studio producer by the name of Rick Beato right now. 
very much a YouTube sensation. He did this series of about 120 different episodes called What Makes This Song Great? And if you've never watched them, I cannot recommend it more. Go out there and see what makes Boston's More Than a Feeling great. See what makes the Queen of the Stone Age No One Knows great. It's a very scholarly deconstruction of that song and chord progressions and the instrumentation and the voicings and so forth. They're amazing to watch. Sorry, not sorry about the rabbit hole you're about to follow down into. I got to thinking, though, that'd be a pretty cool theme to do for board games to really just basically give an homage, a little bit of a love letter to some of our favorite games and dig into a little bit about what makes this great. And, you know, for our uh, series intro on this one, I guess what's better to do than the number one game on Board Game Geek? We're going to do what makes this game great? Brass. But we're not just going to do Brass Birmingham. We're going to do the system in general because there, there's enough shared DNA there that we can talk about Lancashire as well. Uh, Soby, first up, before we get into it, You've played some Brass in your day, right? Yeah, I actually have not played Lancashire, but um, I've played a lot of Brass Birmingham. I want to say maybe eight times, eight to ten times in that realm. Yeah, and you know what? I feel like I live under a rock because I didn't even realize it was the number one BGG game, man. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's so, I mean, plainly a game that's shot up to number one definitely has some great bones to it. Yeah. For those that have also been living under a rock, This is a game that's been out forever. It used to be just called Brass. And then five years ago-ish, Roxley Games put out a new version of it called Brass Birmingham, which was kind of a part two of the game, and renamed the old version of Brass Lancashire. Historically, Brass Lancashire is a ferociously tight, pitifully unforgiving. I mean, you are up in each other's grill. It's agonizing over the, oh my goodness, I'm scanning the entire board for the one action I might be able to do because everybody is in my way. Brass Birmingham is a little more freewheeling, a little more open. It's like the, hey, which one of the fun nine things can I do? So, Sobe, I actually think you'd maybe like Brass Lancashire more. Yeah, there's a lot to the beer fight in Brass Birmingham, and that doesn't happen in Lancashire. So I'd be curious to see how that plays out endgame. Oh, literally every move in Brass Lancashire is a beer fight. (laughs) You can almost rename Brass Birmingham Brass Beer Fight, I think. Yep. So what we're going to do as part of this new series is we've got four major areas that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the theme and the topic, what makes it great. We're going to talk about the mechanisms of the game and why they're great. We're going to talk about uh, gameplay and interaction. And then finally, we're going to talk about the production of it. So first off, theme and topic. So B, why don't you quickly recap the theme of the Brass series? This is a theme of industrialization in uh, Britain between... Uh, the canal era of goods transportation and the rail era of goods transportation. So it's basically the uh, industrial period of Britain. So basically in this game, you are some kind of uh, developer or baron that is potentially building industries in different cities, building canals in the first half of the game uh, for Brass Birmingham and rails in the second half of the game. And then, uh, you know, potentially developing some of those industries or selling their goods in order to reap the benefits of those of those uh, industries that you're building. There's also a bit of an economic aspect here with, uh, you know, your income and uh, things you can do in terms of like taking loans, right? Everyone is going to go into debt in this game. That's super normal. And then uh, there's also a very cool like system for uh, action selection in terms of theme and topic. I feel like this game does a lot to really convey this transition, this industrial transition. You know, I think that 
we, we were chatting earlier beforehand about some of uh, some of the items that make this really interesting. Do you want to comment on some of that, Mark? Yeah. As you talked about, this is a game about industrialization. And during that period of time, the primary way of moving goods around was by canal. And canals are not fast, right? These boats do not have motors on them. So what would happen is you'd load up your entire little canal boat full of whatever you wanted to ship. And then a horse would literally pull it along the side of the canal. And, you know, it would pull it, or several horses would pull it along. So your vast quantity of goods would move about as quick as a horse pulling a boat of stuff could move which wasn't very fast. So growth was relatively slow and kind of limited in what you can do. Furthermore, too, during that period of time, they needed huge quantities of coal to power all of these industrial things that were happening to make steel and to make industry and so forth. And, you know, as you would expect, due to heavy industrialization, the water got super polluted really quickly. Nobody was really worried about dumping like leather tanning runoff directly into the canal that everybody was trying to get water out of. So it was a dark, smoky era that industries were growing up quickly. And um, suddenly halfway through that, boom, somebody invented trains. And now what used to take days to get from one town to another took hours. And literally overnight, all the canal companies went out of business. The rail companies sprung up, built rails every place. And there was an explosion of even more industrialization that happened in the area. That is mapped out directly in the flow of the game in that there's a canal era and a rail era. And at the end of the canal era, you clear all the canals off the board and start over again with rails. And they're worthless. They're completely worthless. Yeah, they're just suddenly, (laughs) they literally went out of business overnight, just like the real game. That's a really thematic aspect. And even like, you know, the question often comes up, like in terms of the resources, why beer? What's the scoop with beer? Well, the water was really, really polluted at the time. So the only really safe thing to drink was beer. And well, you know, it also got people to work too, right? I think our own uh, James J. Hill here in Minneapolis made the comment, you know, give me enough, uh, what is it? Give me enough snuff whiskey and Scotsman and I'll build a (laughs) railway to hell. Oh, man. So there's something something to that effect, but very much the marching lubrication of the day. So we're going to give this very high marks on theme and topic. And that's one of the first reasons that makes brass great. Ultimately, though, games do not get to number one on Board Game Geek on theme alone. You got to get there by why the game is great. Sobi, as a game designer, I'm sure you've got some opinions on things that make things great, and I'll kick in with some of my thoughts. So from a game design mechanism perspective, why is this game great? So I think the really unique part about the brass game, you know, stable of mechanisms is that it's completely predicated on uh, Martin Wallace's pretty much standard concept that let's say he probably innovated this originally for Euro games, honestly, is uh, multi-use cards. Mm-hmm. I think multi-use cards are the core of this game. And there aren't a lot of, actually, I don't, I can't think of any Euro games right now that similar, right? Like Martin Wallace originally did this uh, multi-use card system with games like A Few Acres of Snow, various other war games too. And then uh, seeing the application to a more like economic Euro game, I think it works really well. It makes the decision space like a lot wider, right? Like there, there's a lot of different things you can do with your hand of cards. And it's not just, uh, you know, RNG that's uh, determining what, what you're doing on your turn. Right. There's really only two types of cards. There are location cards and there are industry cards. And the industry cards basically come down to the, hey, I'm already in this. I, I'm already connected to the city. I can open up this type of industry in that city. 
Whereas the location cards are the, hey, I got a guy in that town that will help me set up any kind of industry that that town will support. And the game is basically over when you play through the deck twice. When you're done with the deck the first time, that's the end of the canal phase. When you're done with the deck the second time, that's the end of the game. And every action that you do, even passing, involves discarding a card. So, you know, it's just a card game, Sobi. Yeah, <laughs> and it's that simple, right? It's just a really streamlined mechanism to use in a game to, to dictate the, the flow, the timing, and provide a more, I guess, con- controlled decision space, right? Like, it's not so wide open that you have no idea what to do, right? You take what's in your hand, you think about what your opponents could have in their hand, like a, like a card game, right? Yep. And, then you, and then you make decisions. Yep, and as such, too, Relative to the complexity of the decision making in this game, the rules overhead is fairly low. Like this is a fairly easy game to teach. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, the next mechanism that we should chat about a bit here is part of that mastery track. And we'll talk about the depth in the next bullet. But turn order, I think, is a big part of that. And that, you know, that uh, turn or action programming process. What do you want to say about turn order, Mark? Oh, man. I think you made a comment as we were discussing this game ahead of time is that there's sort of three levels of play. There's the, hey, I can play the game and I know how to do stuff. And then there's another level of the, oh, I now know what to build in order to actually score some points. And that third level is the, how do I manipulate the fabric of the game itself in order to do well? Manipulating turn order is definitely part of that. So the, it's, it's the simplest thing of all, basically. Whoever spent the least amount of money the last turn gets to go first. So if you had this big turn where you get to go crazy and build a whole bunch of stuff, that's cool, but you're going late in the round the turn after that. You basically just stack the money that you spend in terms of chips on top of your little character, reorder them at the start of the next turn, put the money back in the bank, and off you go again. That is just absolutely genius, and it really comes into play at the end of the canal era and the start of the rail era because many of the actions involve spending no money. So if you can line up a turn where you actually take out loans, don't spend any money, fill your hand, and then go first going into the rail era, suddenly now you're first, you can build rails in the most desirable areas, you have the money to do it, and you just are able to take off and kind of run hot right away in the beginning of the rail era. That's probably the third level of the game. There's probably another level after that. I haven't played this enough, but right, right. <laughs> I think uh, I think once you discover how to weaponize some of these like features on of the of the board, kind of like our conversations about 18xx, right? How do you how do you weaponize the mm-hmm. you know the the stock uh, board? How do you how do you uh, how do you weaponize the map? How do you weaponize turn right. order? How do you weaponize getting loans and income and <laughs> yep yep. So I yep. think that ter- turn order is a, a big part of that. And it's it's just a, such a slick system. And then finally, I think the, the last part here is obvious, right? It's the tech tree of, uh, of the, the buildings or developments of your industries. Just a logical design. It's not a linear progression, right? As you go up and deploy better and better factories, it's not like suddenly like, okay, if I made one point and get one more point, one victory point and one more point of income, the next one will be two points and two. No. They, they like flip at some point, like some of them are like, okay, you don't make any more income, but now you get a whole bunch more victory points. Right. Yeah. Figuring out like the hot spots in each one of those little uh, building tracks, really important. And you get an action where you can actually burn some of them away to skip the uh, inefficient ones to go right for the better ones. Yeah, I think timing is crucial. Kind of combining that turn order and loans 
with that tech tree and development that's a critical part of the game is finding room to breathe so that you can develop away some of those tech tiles and then or some of those industry tiles and then uh, jumping up into a better category well and where that also plays into the fact is that there are tiles that you can only build in the first phase in the canal phase there are tiles you can only build in the rail phase and by the way, any of the higher level tiles, any of the rail phase tiles that you build in the canal phase actually score twice. And, yeah. you know, that's that higher level strategy in the game is the, okay, I need to somehow produce enough resources so that I can build those higher level buildings that are going to score multiple times rather than just one time throw away the buildings and then build new ones. Yeah, it's a race, uh, race. And, the, and then there's also a lot of uh, timing involved within, right? So... A nice, uh, nice confluence of all those mechanisms. Yep. The next uh, bullet here we have, Mark, uh, and I'll let you take the lead here, is interactivity or inter- interaction. So player, player versus player and how that works. More broadly, it's like, what is the gameplay like in this game? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Gameplay, right? Um, how the players work to work against each other. And then, you know, strategy, tactics, combination thereof, and in general, the depth of the game. Yep. Uh, this is a super deep game. It's one of those that you're absolutely going to get crushed by somebody that's good at it for multiple plays. And as you keep playing it, more and more things about this game unfold for you, realizing what parts of the map are good and what parts are not, what parts are really scoring nexuses and are not, and just what actions are good, what buildings are good, what order of things are good, what timing is good. There's so many areas to unlock and improve upon. And just want to talk about a few of those areas. So kind of one of the first key areas that that really stands out is that this is one game where you don't just want to do stuff for yourself you want to get other people to do your bidding for you case in point you don't score one of the buildings that you build until it flips over and like finished goods flip over when you sell them raw materials flip over when they get used up so other people might need to use your raw materials so let's say I, i form a steel or a coal plant i build that i put some resources out there and other players have to take yours if they're on the board. If, the, if you're the only ones on the board with that, they have to take yours. And that helps you actually flip over and score your building. That really amps up the interactivity. So literally, you're throwing bait out there. Try to race people to get your bait out there first so that other people can develop up your board and score points for you as well. That's awesome. And I can't think of another game that works exactly like that, where you're purposely putting out stuff on the board for other people to use that ultimately gives you more benefit than them. Right. And that's part of that timing issue, right? With, uh, with the mechanisms. Do I put out a phase one industry just to know that it's going to get removed in the next round so that I can take advantage of someone using my resource? Tough decisions. Yeah. Speaking of decisions too, this is maybe more a factor of Lancashire than it is of Birmingham, but I can't tell you the number of times that, um, okay, I've had my perfect plan in place. I've, you know, figured out, okay, I'm going to build there. Then I, you know, I have all the right cards that I can develop these two industries and I'm going to put them there and then I'm going to ship my stuff over there only to have somebody torpedo me by, by taking away my beer or to build a rail link in a place I didn't expect or to place a city card and take the spot out of the town I wanted to. Everything, everything, everything is in somebody else's way. And again, that interaction is great. It's not just, oh, you took my spot. Okay, bugger, I'll take it next time. No. It's the, oh, I need to pivot to a completely different plan because there's no beer on the table anymore. I need that to sell my goods. That's my primary strategy. And it's going to take me several turns to develop my own. 
Yeah, we talked about this a little bit earlier too, but uh, the that kind of flows right into the area control aspect of the game. Like it, it is a heavy area control game, right? You know, you, you look at it with all these routes and oh, it's route building and all this stuff. But no, it is a brutal area control game. You really need to box out the resources maintain access to those resources and uh, use them at the at the end game or someone else will and uh, that's why i said earlier that this can be uh you know brass beer fight right brass birmingham specifically well and and ultimately you you use those things to monopolize the areas because one of the hugest scoring areas in the game is where you build links and if you don't have access to the raw materials you need you can't capitalize on building links from the cities that that score you a huge amount of points. Yeah, and in Berm specifically, I mean, beer is used for so much. I mean, you need it for double rail builds. You need it for shipping a lot of goods. Mm-hmm. You just need it, <laughs> plain and simple. Yeah, and it's also got an interesting twist that uh, beer on the board that's yours can be teleported from any place. Beer on the board that's somebody else's you have to be connected to. So the whole goal is about creating beer that only you have access to. Yeah, there's so many like little pockets in the map, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess Easter eggs, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, interesting uh, developments where they, the map was very well developed to provide opportunities like that. The next item that I think is great in terms of gameplay is that there are lots of different paths to victory, right? It's not just automatically building the most links is going to win. Not automatically building all the breweries is going to win. It's not automatically going up the tech tree is going to win. Or maybe just doing all of those things to a high level is going to win as well. There's a lot of different ways to play this game. Yeah, I think so. Every game's different, I think. Once you figure out how to get in on the beer fight, I think the game really opens up. Kind of reminds me a bit of Food Chain Magnate, actually. You start thinking like, hey, this is really a one-dimensional game. I have to have this strategy. But then you realize that like around that strategy is where the nuance is. Yep. You also start realizing, too, that things that appear awesome on your first couple plays maybe aren't so good and you really should let somebody else do that and then capitalize on them doing that. Case in point is developing iron versus coal. It's very easy to make your first early coal mines, and it's very easy to think that, oh, I'm going to build a coal mine and then somebody else is going to just use my coal and then I'm going to score a bunch of points for that and flip it over. Yeah, in reality, you want somebody else to do that so that you have access to coal to build your iron plant, which scores you a lot more points. You want to be the iron provider, not the coal provider, so you try to help somebody else do that. Very much a next-level way of thinking in this game. So that is, um, that's our thoughts on interaction. It's a game that just keeps getting better every time you play it, and it's a game that, as you learn more about it, it becomes more fun to play because you start realizing some of these super powerful moves you can make, and Uh, the strategy you can unlock. Lastly is the production of this game, and you certainly can't have a discussion about Brass Birmingham or Brass Lancashire without talk about the production. And I think for the purpose of this game, we'll talk both about the, you know, the development level of the game as well as just the art package. Maybe we'll keep it strictly just to talking about the Roxley publication of it because there are older versions of it, and though perfectly functional, I don't think anybody would call them out as being very beautiful games. Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier in the theme, but one of the main things that stands out with art is the darkness of the map that, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of people will complain about how dark and dreary it is. And, you know, what my answer to that is, is so what? I mean, that's the theme. Yep. Well, I don't know. (laughs) I probably shouldn't admit this. I guess I've admitted it publicly before. I actually use the dark side of the board as metagaming. Mm hmm. 
you know, you maybe have trouble reading the board. I know the board really well. <laughs> I need every little advantage I can get. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's not super sporting, but you know, it is a dark game and I don't know. You can learn it. It's not that hard. It's not phenomenal, but I, I think the wor- the worst part though of the the art and overall like artistic production is just the the, the choice of colors and suits and matching to the cards and the locations on the board. They're all just kind of they're they're a bit of a fiddly mishmash trying to trying to find those and it's easy to get confused. It is tough to find cities on the map, right? You have a card that says Belper on it, and where's Belper? I have no yeah. idea. And so it, right. they are color coded, right? I mean, there's in one area, they're all kind of maroon. In another area, they're all kind of blue. In another area, they're all purple. <laughs> Notice those <laughs> colors are all kind of similar to each other, right? Another one, they're yeah. kind of orangish red. Yeah. It can be really tough on the, you know, so half the game is spent kind of bent over the board looking for Belper. Yeah. Yeah. So that is one of the downsides of it. I do think, though, that uh, they did an excellent job in managing the scalability of the game by player count. Basically, they just close off regions of the board and number of markets based on how many players are there. And that really makes the map constrict down and ensures that you have a constant level of interaction between players on the map. Yeah, I think it's a, in general, a pretty well-developed game. And this is talking from a product development perspective, right? And uh, as like a supplement to design, which honestly, you know, Martin Wallace's games historically from, for example, like... uh, you know, so, some of his other publishers, right, might not have the best development standards for, you know, testing and fine tuning the product. This one does, though. So you can tell that a lot of effort and testing has gone into the system over the years. And we are looking at a fine tuned system that has been played thousands of times. So that's a that's a significant positive for this game. Yep. To wrap it all up, what makes this game great? Well, really, it's all of those items. It's really it's a complete package of a game. It looks great. It plays great. It's one you'll want to play over and over again. You know, it's stood the test of time. It's been around for a long time. It's going to be around for a long time. And uh, legitimately, Sobi, you could tell me, you know, that you don't like playing it because it's not your style of game. And okay, that's fine. But uh, you are getting side eye from me if you say it's not a good game. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I I, I think I'm okay with this being the number one BGG game. I think it's much better than many that could be in that position for sure. Is it my number one game? No, but I think it's probably top 30. And if it's in everybody's top 30, right, that's probably enough to push it to number one. If everybody kind of agrees, yeah, it's a pretty good game. I have other more that are more favorite. That's a pretty good game. Yeah, absolutely. And that's enough to do it. That's a fair point, right? Is it the best game ever? Probably not. But is it the game that everybody else agrees is a really, really good game? Yeah, it is. And that consistency is what pushes it to the top of the pile. Yeah, I don't often hear people in discussions about board games say Brass is a bad game. No. You know, again, like I said, if you don't like economic games, if you want something a little lighter, that's a perfectly reasonable argument and one that I will definitely give you a pass on. But um Looking at it, uh, this was my number three game of 2022 and my and Brass Lancashire was my number three game of 2021. So this has consistently been in my Mount Rushmore of favorite games. Nice. That's awesome. So anyway, every episode, we're going to do another one of these. So Sobe, you're on the hot seat next time to pick a what makes this game great. Awesome. And if we hear recommendations from anyone, I'd be willing to entertain those as well. Fantastic. And, uh, you know. They may not always be in the top 100, right? But it's games that we look at that 
we consider great. Well, hey, Soby, second episode in a row. This was an awful lot of fun. Yeah, I don't know if we're ever going to record an episode less than an hour and a half, Mark. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so this is supposed to be an hour long, right? The whole concept of this was it was going to be an hour, but... Um, uh, we even you know, skipped like a huge section, too. Uh, I think we need to maybe just uh, be a little more selective about games we play, but we don't often go to muster for an extended yeah. period of time. Yeah, good point. Our time loss is your gain, and... Uh, looking at another week of production to get this kicked out with all the editing but oh well <laughs> that'll wrap things up for the gaming moguls i'm mark and i'm soby good night everybody good night this has been the gaming moguls podcast please find us on itunes spotify google play stitcher or TuneIn. feel free to join our board game geek guild guild number 3431 find us on instagram and twitter at gaming moguls or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.